Music and murder contains violence, profanity, and graphic material that may not be suitable for children or people with weak stomachs. Parental advisory is definitely recommended. He took what she described as a length of piano wire and wrapped it around one of her breasts and just kept pulling it, tightening the wire uh, until finally she passed out. And then the next thing she knew, uh, she woke up in the hospital. Welcome back. This is Music and Murder, the show that people literally kill or die to be on. Tonight, oh tonight, oh tonight I give you the most goriest and depraved, sadistic, perverted, fucked up story that I've ever encountered in my entire life. And honestly, I hope it stays that way, because nothing needs to be more sicker than this case. Dim the lights, sit back, relax. Oh, and if you're eating, hurry up and finish that shit. You'll thank me later. And away we go. The clinical definition of a serial killer is anyone that kills more than three people at different times thus giving them a cooling off period and separates them from a spree killer who has no cooling off period. The same goes for a serial rapist or pretty much a serial anything, except for of course serial that you eat. I'm kind of like a Wikipedia but you can call me Dickopedia because I'll explain things like a sarcastic pompous dick because honestly stupid people offend me and they should all be cancelled. The story I have for you tonight is about a serial killer that worked with one of the most well-known serial killers in United States history, John Wayne Gacy. Gacy, also known as the Killer Clown, not to be confused with Violent J and Shaggy 2 Dope of ICP, had 29 bodies buried in his basement and had left four other bodies in Des Plaines River, which was just a couple of miles from his home in Chicago, Illinois. His body count remains at a factual 33. He never wrote a rap song about his murders, but his last words before he was sent to hell by lethal injection on May 10th, 1994 was, and I quote, kiss my ass. He sat on death row for 16 years and that was the best he could come up with. So I guess it's probably better that he never did write a song. Casey was arrested just four days before Christmas in 1978, just three years after his arrest. One of his subcontractors that his company hired, a piece of shit named Robin Gecht, and three of his friends went on one of the most brutal and disgusting rampages in serial killer history. Tonight, we discuss the case of the Chicago Ripper Crew. Robin Gecht worked for John Wayne Gacy's company, PDM Construction, but he was only hired by Gacy as a subcontractor, not as an actual employee, as many other podcasts and documentaries state. 
So there's definitely no truth to the folklore that the two had worked and killed together. And yeah, I'm sorry to burst the bubble of all you true crime connoisseurs that thought you knew that as a fact. And if you don't believe me, feel free to research it yourself. From authentic sources such as actual FBI or police files or interviews. Not some jerk off on YouTube. I'm not here to BS or make things sound spooky. I'm here to tell you what actually happened. Now one thing that was a coincidence is that Gacy did claim that he did kill some of his victims with his employees and Gett definitely killed people with his employees. So there is that. They're also both from Chicago, Illinois and both of their last names start with a G. Other than that, there is no connection or similarities whatsoever. The only true facts are that Gacy killed young men who were his employees and Gecht killed women with his male employees. Now the Chicago Ripper crew didn't have anywhere near the large body count that John Wayne Gacy accumulated, but the manner in which they killed their victims is what made them stand out amongst literally everyone in the entire world. From this point on, I'm going to refer to the Chicago Ripper crew as simply the Ripper crew. Now the Ripper crew consisted of ringleader and boss 30-year-old Robin Gecht, 21-year-old Ed Spritzer, and teenage brothers Tommy and Andrew Cocorales. The Ripper crew worked together, listened to heavy metal music together, tortured together, raped together, killed together, and even jerked off together. It's crazy how all the things that I just mentioned, jerking off probably caught your attention the most. <sighs> the world is crazy. Now they did all of their abducting and some of their raping and killing in a red 1975 Dodge utility van. According to the police report, in the van they found chains, handcuffs, duct tape, pornographic magazines, and a piano wire, which we will discuss in great detail later, and being this is music and murder, there were three cassette tapes that I could make out in the van seizure evidence photos. And those tapes were Ozzy Osbourne's first solo record, Blizzard of Oz, Judas Priest's Sad Wings of Destiny, which is Priest's 1976 release that actually included the song The Ripper. So, there's that. The third tape was Hotter Than Hell by Kiss, which is probably my favorite record by Kiss next to Destroyer. Kiss Alive 2 is pretty damn good too. Now the place that most of the actual killing and jerking off was done was in Robin Geck's attic, which was turned into a makeshift chapel of Satan. And on many nights when his wife was gone to work, I'm not sure exactly what she did for work, but I'm assuming it was likely nursing or something in the medical field. Now Robin Gecht, the Grand Poobah, and pretty much the only adult in this crew, was never an ass man. He was always very, very, very much a tit man. According to Gecht, even his grandfather's grandfather was a tit man. According to all Gecht's ex-girlfriends, he always had 
this little fetish, or rather a paraphilia, which is kind of like a fetish, but not exactly. Paraphilias are frequent, intense, sexually arousing fantasies or behaviors that involve inanimate objects, children, or non-consenting adults, or suffering or humiliation of oneself or their partner, and in this case, it was the cutting or removal of female breasts. His exes said that he would keep bugging and bugging them until they would cut or let him cut their nipples. In one case, his ex from high school said that he actually cut one of her nipples off. But that is just hearsay. But one thing that isn't hearsay is that Gecht did in fact cut his ex-wife's nipples off. She did testify to that in court. I didn't see the pictures, but she did testify to that. Now this won't be a shocker, but supposedly Gecht and the other three all had a history of animal abuse, which is usually always a sign that not only somebody might turn into a murderer, but they're also a piece of rotten shit. I've never in my life met anyone that mistreated animals that wasn't a piece of shit, ever. Don't think I ever will. Okay, so more on this story after this amazing song by the band Byzantine. And Chris Ojeda, the lead singer of this amazing band, will likely be on as my guest for the discussion in one of the future episodes. Please check them out. This is a song called Five Faces of Madness by Byzantine.
That's right, motherfucker. You got a motherfucking collect call from Joe motherfucking Exotic, the Tiger motherfucking King. And I done heard that motherfucking episode that you put on with me saying sorry and all that motherfucking shit. Fuck you and motherfuck that Carol Baskin. I'm the motherfucking shot caller in this motherfucker, motherfucker. I have all the tigers, all the motherfucking meth, and I have the keys to this motherfucking car, and I run this motherfucking prison, and I'm gonna get the motherfucker out of here, and I'm gonna fucking kill you and that Carol motherfucking Baskin talking all that motherfucking shit on your podcast. You listen here, motherfucker. I'm the motherfucker you gonna wake up to, motherfucker, and I'm gonna stab your motherfucking neck with a pencil. I ain't fucking with you, motherfucker. I ain't hiring some meth addict to kill your motherfucking ass, motherfucker. Fuck you and your music and murder, motherfucking cocksucker. By the way, I'm still running for motherfucking governor. When I become governor, I'm really killing your motherfucking ass. Fuck you. Fuck that fucking Carol Baskin! Oh, if I didn't know any better, I would say that Joe's a little pissed off at me. Not only does he want to kill me, but he wants to put a pencil in my neck. I should have known it wasn't going to take long before he got all clicked up and got all mean and stuff. If he continues to threaten my life, I'm going to quit taking his phone calls. It's just as simple as that. I have to draw the line. Anyway, if you would like to get your music on my show, Music and Murder, you could email me at murdercast at mail.com one word murdercast at mail.com on instagram music underscore murder underscore podcast on facebook just music and murder podcast all genres are welcome and if you like the show and you enjoy it please share it and leave good feedback okay let's get back to the story Spring of 1981, on the evening of May 23rd in Chicago, Illinois, Gecht and his Ripper crew were driving around in their 1975 Red Dodge van, smoking weed and blaring 70s heavy metal music, looking for a female victim. They have with them all of the tricks of the trade. Handcuffs, duct tape, rope, chains, and they even have a signature white feather roach clip hanging from the rearview mirror, a sign in the 70s and the 80s that you were, air quote, cool. At first glance, you'd probably think they were on their way to an Aerosmith concert or something. But no, these two men and these two boys were looking for a helpless, defenseless, and powerless woman to abduct, rape, torture, kill, and mutilate. It didn't take them too long to come across their very first victim, 26-year-old Linda Sutton. Some sources say she was 28, but most say that she was 26. Now She was a prostitute that was working behind a local seedy motel called the Br'er Rabbit. I wonder if that's where the name B-Rabbit came from in the movie 8 Mile. Whenever I think of Eminem nowadays, I think of Marshall Mathers, Slim Shady, and of course B-Rabbit, and obviously Eminem. And why he needs to have four names, I have no idea. He's worse than P. Diddy, Puff Daddy, Snoop Dogg, Lion, uh, all these names these guys have now. So these four guys are driving around, 
They see Linda Sutton in the back of the Brer Rabbit Hotel. They pull up and they have a brief talk with her. They flash a wad of cash. She gets into the van with the four guys. They immediately just bum rush this girl. They hold a gun to her head. She is then gang raped, brutally sodomized, and cut all over her body with what appear to be razor blades or knives, something really sharp. And then, then she was held down and a piano wire was strapped around her left breast and slowly tightened until it swole up enough to finally rip off. She was found 10 days later in the morning when a manager of a different motel about 30 minutes from the Brer Rabbit called the police because they smelled something like a rotting deer or some kind of decaying life form. But it wasn't an animal. It was Linda Sutton. Now why they would call the police if they thought it was a deer, I have no idea. I personally live in a heavily deer populated area and there's dead deer all over, all over the roads all of the time. Now, Linda Sutton was pretty decomposed and she was lying face down. She was still bound with nickel-plated handcuffs around her wrists. She had on a sweater, no pants, and her underwear were pulled down about to her knees. Detectives quickly rule out any type of robbery because Linda still had $17 sticking out of her left sock. Police initially thought that she had been dead for around a week, but the autopsy confirmed that she had only been dead for around three days. They were able to tell this by the insects that had infiltrated her body. Insects usually go through the mouth, eyes, ears, anus, or the vagina first when they encounter a dead body. But the insects in this case began first by going through the enormous gaping wound from where Linda's breast was removed. I mean, slowly sliced off by a piano wire. Oh, and by the way, it was literally always just the left breast that was removed with the Ripper crew. Now, why would anyone want to remove a woman's breast, you ask? Well, here's a clip with world-renowned forensic psychologist Kathleen Ramsland to help answer that. There are three reasons why someone might remove a body part. One is it's a paraphilia, which is a deviant sexual practice to somebody gets aroused by unusual objects or activities. The other can be symbolic in that they're removing a body part that's representative of female, for example, in order to then do something with it that will empower them. And the third one would be to as a memento or a souvenir from the murder. I agree 100%. And in this case, I think it was literally all three of those reasons. Now let's do the math on the timeline of the murder and abduction of Linda Sutton. She was missing for 10 days and only dead for three. Nothing that I could find anywhere tells me where this lady was for seven days between her abduction and her death. But here's what interviews and confessions from the men state happened to 26-year-old Linda Sutton's breast 
once it was removed from her body. Remember before how I mentioned a makeshift satanic altar in Robin Geck's attic? Well, apparently, the four men took Linda Sutton's breast that they removed to that satanic altar slash attic. There in this attic was a big altar that included a big four to five foot inverted red cross. The four men put the breast in front of that cross and then Robin Gett read some scripture from a satanic Bible that was seized as evidence but I cannot find out the title or the author of the book. But he would read passages from this book and then he pulled out his penis and he stroked it until he ejaculated all over her breast. And then once he was done, he read more passages from the book while the other three stroked their penises and ejaculated onto the breast as well. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking this is the most disgusting, vile thing that you've ever heard. Well, maybe you're correct, but only because I haven't told you the next part. After the Ripper crew all ejaculated onto this amputated breast, which by now I'm sure is just a small pile of skin, Robin Gecht would then cut the breast into four pieces, and the four of them all ate a piece, as if it were a type of satanic communion. Another crazy fact is that during his confession after police arrested him, Thomas Cocorales stated that he had actually seen about 15 mummified breasts in Robin Geck's dresser drawer up in his Satan's altar attic. The three men also testified that they believed that Robin Gecht had the power to draw people to him, making them feel as if they were in a trance they couldn't get out of. Once under the spell of Gecht's powers, the three men claimed he could get them to do whatever he desired, be that murder or cannibalism or jerking off onto an amputated breast. They claimed that there was no choice but to follow Gecht's lead, believing if they had not, they too would fall victim to his sadistic ways. His sadistic ways, not theirs. But still, how do you even start a conversation about doing something like this? Even if you have super magical Satan powers like Robin Gecht obviously allegedly had. This is what goes on in my head when I think about this case. Do you just tell your young employees, hey guys, how would you feel about picking up a prostitute, raping and torturing her, cutting her into shreds, cutting off her left breast, taking it back to my pad where I have this altar, this like Satan thing, and we can all jerk off and like eat it. It may sound stupid or like I'm making a joke, but I'm not. This shit doesn't just happen. These guys literally at some point had to discuss what they were going to do before they did it. Just think about that. There was a conversation about this before it happened. 
And during that conversation, plans were made and details were mapped out and everything was unanimously agreed on by all four of them. As far as I can tell, there was nobody that walked away or said, oh, that's crazy, or I'm out of here, fuck you guys. No, four out of four ghoulish monsters agreed to be ghoulish monsters. <sighs> now here's a song by yours truly called Haters Are Gonna Hate. I just feel that we need something funny after this last segment. Remember, if you don't like any of the songs that I play on the show, just hit the forward button a few times and don't listen to it. But please, please always give every song a little fighting chance. All right, be right back. Well, haters are gonna hate. It's like destiny and fight. Like little girls, they giggle well Like bitches, they just sniffle hell Life's in back in a honky-tonk I meet a girl and I get that day My life is great So haters gonna hate Yeah, I got me a brand new lift kit I was on the road just flying high Then I saw this redhead Waving as she drove by But then I saw her boyfriend with his finger up in the air I shook my head and I laughed out loud Sure as hell didn't care Because haters are gonna hate It's like destiny and fate Like little girls that giggle Well, like bitches they just sniffle Hell, life's sit back in a honky-tonk I meet a girl and I get that day My life is great So haters gonna hate
About a year later, after the Ripper crew killed and mutilated Linda Sutton, they murdered their second victim, Lori Borowski. They abducted her in their red van with the cassette tapes and roach clip as she was walking to work. Why it took them an entire year to kill again is a complete mystery. It may not entirely be accurate. There's many reasons why the Ripper crew may have victims that they won't acknowledge. Their victims during this year may have been children or pregnant women or just someone that they feel was a mistake. If Tommy Cocorales did see 15 breasts in Robin Geck's attic, Gecht must have been doing killing or at the least kidnapping and mutilating on his own or with others besides the normal four-man crew that this case revolves around. However, if they didn't kill any women during that entire year, my guess would be that it was probably due to the fact that it was quite a shock to all of them when they actually went through with the first murder. And they were probably extremely paranoid of not only the police, but also of each other. They needed to make damn sure that nobody was going to talk or get squeamish and run away from their little crew. They basically needed to feel comfortable with murdering women all together again. One thing about this Ripper crew, they didn't just target prostitutes like Gary Ridgway or Willie Picton or many serial killers. They had absolutely no set type, race, or job that they were looking for. The only thing that all of the River Cruise victims had in common was that they were all women. And, of course, they all had breasts. On May 15th, 1982, literally just eight days shy of a year from Linda Sutton's murder, a real estate agent named Lorraine Browski, better known as Lori, was confronted by the Ripper crew as she was walking in the parking lot on her way to her office around 9 a.m. They pulled up alongside Lori and they offered her a ride. When she declined to get in the van with the four guys who probably looked like they were up all night jerking off in an attic that was turned into a local church of Latter-day Satan, two of the men jumped out and grabbed her. They took her to a hotel room where they then gang-raped her and beat her. And once again, the infamous piano wire was wrapped around one of her breasts and tightened until it was severed from her body and fell to the floor. I saw the police photos and they literally cut a hole in her shirt to expose her breast to do this because they didn't even want to take the time to remove her shirt. According to Spritzer's sworn testimony, Gecht had sex with Borowski's breast right there in the hotel room in front of the other men while she was still alive and conscious and then finished her off with an axe once he ejaculated. So I'm guessing that he actually wrapped her severed breast 
around his penis and stroked his penis with it until he ejaculated. They don't go into detail on the exact specifics, but I'm assuming that's what Spritzer meant. Now it was very, very important to these four ghouls that all of their victims were alive during the torture and removal of their breasts. In some cases, the victims were forced to take pills so they'd be more compliant, but remained alive, awake, and most importantly, conscious. Here's a clip to explain this a little better. If you see a lot of brutality that's anti-mortem, they want that person to suffer. They want to humiliate that victim before they actually kill them. So that's an added component to the fantasy. They want that person to understand psychologically that they're going to get battered and bludgeoned and hurt. There's going to be a lot of pain before they're murdered. This is a person who's usually angry, probably has been humiliated somewhere along their life. Now by anti-mortem, she obviously means pre-death, that the victims need to be alive. Now there's lots of speculation of why the four, mainly Get, decided to sever the breast with a piano wire rather than a saw or knife or other things that could obviously easily remove a breast. Once again, here's a clip to explain a little bit of that. He probably tried different things and looked at different possible weapons before he settled on the wire. And the wire, of course, if you hold it taut, is going to slice through all kinds of things. And it's going to be a weapon that isn't going to be obvious should somebody come into his home to do a search, who's going to think a piano wire is what was used? I don't agree with that theory. Why would you have a drawer full of mummified breasts, an altar to Satan, and all the other stuff in your attic, but you worry about a weapon. Plus, it was proven that they did have firearms and they used those firearms to scare the women and make them comply. In one case, they held one of their victims at gunpoint and actually made her cut off her own breast. In my opinion, the wire was slow painful, and being that they were choosing to do this only while the women were still alive, the most important part was the breasts swelling with blood until it literally bursted and blood would be squirting out. That's just my theory, but I am sticking to it. Now during the next four months after Lori Borowski went missing, multiple women began showing up all over parts of Chicago, and they were found raped, brutally beaten, and mutilated with their left breasts removed. And many of them had their right breasts slashed as well, but not removed. Some of their faces were caved in and beaten so badly and brutally that they were completely unrecognizable, and some were even chopped up with an axe. The police were just baffled over the motive because there was never anything besides the left breast ever taken or removed from the victims. This actually baffles me 
because these guys weren't rich. So it's very surprising that they wouldn't take their victim's money. If for nothing else, just maybe for beer, cassette tapes, or hell, maybe another upside down cross for the good old attic altar of Satan. On May 29th, 1982, the Ripper crew abducted Shui Mack from Hanover Village, which is a village northwest of Villa Park. Her body wasn't found for four months. And two weeks after they abducted Mac, they picked up a woman named Angel York. Now this one was different than their normal MO. They handcuffed Angel York and just slashed her breast before throwing her out of the van while she was still alive. And this is where the Ripper crew begins to get a little sloppy. Angel York was able to give a detailed description of the Ripper crew and their hair metal van from hell but it produced absolutely no leads. Here's a clip of her actual description. There were several very distinguishing features between the front driver's seats and the rear of the van was a plywood partition. She also described a roach clip hanging from the front mirror in the van that had two long feathers hanging from it. One was blue and one was white. Now the gang didn't strike again for two months after throwing Angel York from the van. On August 28, 1982, the body of Sandra Delaware was discovered on the bank of the Chicago River. She had been stabbed, strangled, and of course, her left breast was amputated. On September 8, 31-year-old Rose Davis was also found in an alley having suffered almost identical injuries as Delaware. They kind of had a pattern, and they kind of stuck with it. We'll be right back with what happens next after this song called What We've Done from Robert Granada.
After 16 long months, after the Ripper crew first killed and mutilated Lori Sutton, Chicago police finally catch a break. On December 6th, 1982, an extremely cold and snowy Chicago day, police find a prostitute named Beverly Washington left for dead by an alley in Chicago. The clip I played in the very beginning was about her. She was the one that woke up in the hospital after passing out from having her breast removed by the infamous piano wire. After Beverly Washington tells police what happened to her and gives a detailed description of her abductors with a pen and paper because she couldn't talk at the time, police put out an APB on the van and just 10 days later, on December 16, 1982, police spot the mighty hair metal van from hell, complete with the plywood divider behind the front seats and the stoner's rule feather roach clip flapping in the wind and Edward Spritzer driving. And he literally shit his pants when the police began questioning him. He immediately told police that the van wasn't his and that it belonged to his boss, local electrician and carpenter and fellow jerk-off buddy, Robin Gecht. When police drive to Gecht's house to question him, they realize that he, along with the van and three others in the Ripper crew, all fit Beverly Washington's description to the T. Gecht remained calm. He never cracked or broke a sweat and told the police that he had nothing to do with what happened to Beverly Washington. Being that Washington was still in critical condition, the police drag Gecht to the hospital where she points him out without a single hesitation and then she literally collapses out of fear after seeing him. They charge and arrest Gecht on the spot, but he posts bail and disappears. While he's out on the run, Another one of the surviving victims come forward and police are able to put two and two together. And they realize that Edward Spritzer 
must have been involved as well. I mean, after all, he did shit his pants when they pulled him over, so... Thus, this was the end of the Ripper crew. And the beginning of the new Snitcher crew. All three men confessed to killing or trying to kill 18 women in total. Some to this day, almost 40 years later, have still not been recovered. And that number could be in the hundreds for all we know. Remember, Spritzer claimed he saw 15 breasts in Gek's drawer, and he didn't know where they came from. Out of all four of the Ripper crew members, Gek was the only one to deny all allegations, and to this day, claims that he's innocent. So in layman terms, that means we will never know how many women get killed. We only know that he had a total of 18 victims with his Ripper crew at the very least. This case is full of folklore, such as the men literally having sex with the victim's wounds and having intercourse with the gaping holes left in their chest after their breasts were removed. But I don't believe all of that. I just don't. If you believe it, I certainly respect it. But everything else that I discussed via this case, I believe to be 100% true and accurate. Robin Gecht was sentenced to three 60-year sentences and one 30-year sentence for a grand total of 210 years. However, he was never convicted of a single murder. Kind of like David Ray Parker in episode two. But unlike Ray, Gekt is still alive and well, and he will be up for parole in 2042 when he's a nice, ripe, young 89-year-old man. It must be hard to be a tit man in prison where there's nothing but a bunch of ass everywhere. Edward Spritzer, who was 21 during the murders, was convicted of first-degree murder and received the death penalty, but it was later commuted to life in prison. Andrew Cocorales, who was just a teen at the time of the murders, was put to death by lethal injection on St. Paddy's Day in 1999. He was the youngest of the four and the only one to die. I find this extremely interesting and extremely frustrating. And what happened to his older brother, Thomas Cocorales, you ask? Well, he was released two years ago. He has found God, recanted his confessions, states that he never murdered anyone, and now is completely remorseless about everything that he had done. In fact, here's a nice little clip just in case you don't believe me. Can you see why people have a hard time believing that you had nothing to do with these crimes? Yes and no. He's not offering much of an apology to Lori's family either. If I don't want to talk to him. You there's don't just, want to talk to him? No, the, there's nothing that you want to say to that family? No, I just, I just want to say that I'm, I, feel, I feel for him. I feel sorry for him. He doesn't want to see us and 
Thank God, I don't want to see him. Mark can't imagine a path to redemption for the man who confessed 36 years ago on tape to murdering his sister and is now taking it all back. Mark is shackled to his worst nightmare for everyone in the Chicago area. My biggest fear is that he reoffends. And you think that's likely? Oh yeah, 100%. The guy's heartless, has no soul. But Cocorales says everyone must face his new reality. They want to see me back behind the bars, permanently. But they got to deal with it, I'm out. And on that note, I want to thank you for your time. Please follow me on IG, music underscore murder underscore podcast, or on Facebook at music and murder podcast. Or email me at murdercast at mail.com. Murdercast at mail.com. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for your time. And if you like the show, please leave good feedback and share it. Thank you again. And always, always, always remember, just because... You're paranoid does not mean they're not out to get you. Oh, and one more thing. Make sure to stick around for the after show discussion with this guy, Bubbles. Right inside my mind.
Uh, Please state your name after the tone, and Google Voice will try to connect you. Michael. Hello. How the fuck do you have your own secretary that, like, answers the phone and asks people for their name? Uh, that's Google Voice, but, um, I call it Susie, my secretary. <laughs> I will call her Susie as well. All right, yes, so... Yeah, how did Susie, how did Susie treat you? She just, like... She's like, do you want a blowjob? And I'm like, no, I'm just trying to call Bubbles. So she's like, well, do you want to fuck? And I'm like, no, I'm just trying to call Bubbles. So to me, it was pretty nice. I I thought that she was very, very, very generous. I'll forward the feedback. (laughs) All right, so we are recording. This is Bubbles. You just heard his tune. What was it called again? This is my thing? Yeah, I'm not sure, but it sounded really good. Sometimes I forget how good my music is. It's fucking incredible. It's almost as good as Byzantine, that first band that you were just texting me about. Weren't they fucking good? Those guys are badass. Yes, they were bringing some heavy energy, dark energy. I like the energy spectrum, both high energy on the positive and negative frequencies. Yeah, for sure. And I can't tell if they're, like, singing about Satan or God half the time because I can't understand what they're saying. So <laughs> right. they, they might be yeah, like, go exactly. to church every day and, you know, go to the gym and drink smoothies and stuff. Or they might be, like, sacrifice kids. I, I don't I don't ever know. But they're, they're a really good band. I love the dude's voice. I'm a big fan of Lamb of God as well. And that guy kind of, he kind of has that Lamb of God vibe to him. So let's talk about your stuff, and the song that we just played, did you actually write that? Because I saw that there was another person's name in there, Charlie Patton or something like that? Ah, that is dedicated to Charlie Patton, the old bluesman. Oh, okay. You know, I thought I heard that name before, but I mean, that's that's not the most uncommon name in the world, so I didn't know if that was about him or not. He was around in the late 1920s and early 30s. I did write that song i composed the words which is like it's my thing it's my thing it's my thing because i'm a talented lyricist of course (laughs) i enjoy Uh, i enjoyed all your stuff your stuff is, is strange and weird to me but i like it because pretty much these days everything sounds the fucking same so it is nice to hear something that's fresh and just different you know i appreciate that That one was my response to the Isley Brothers' It's Your Thing. Have you heard that song? Oh, my God. My favorite movie in the world is Boogie Fucking Nights. And, yeah, that's, like, one of the main parts they play that song. So, yeah. That's epic. It's such a good song. I had to respond to it. So this one is It's My Thing. (laughs) I like that. I like that. And uh, we're going to play some of your stuff. I'm going to put on another song after we have this conversation, too. If you'd like to hear more from Bubbles. And by the way, his name is Bubbles. He lives in Nashville. Yes. So anyway, let's let's like talk that. about the case for a little bit. So this case, I would like to start off with saying that one part that I did leave out of the case when I was listening to it today, I did not talk about how Robin Gecht actually got caught after he went on the run from being arrested. And there's a reason for that, because... I can only find three different sources, and they're all completely different. This story, to find definite facts, and it was very, very difficult. I mean, from the amount of time that he was 
put in prison to when he's being paroled to one of them says that his wife was testifying against him. One of them says that his wife is waiting for him to be paroled and all this shit, you know, it's just like to, to weed out the, the, the fake stuff. So I just left it out. Honestly, I don't know how the guy was apprehended. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I left it out. But what a story, though. It seems to be with groups of crime that it's especially difficult to ascertain what happened. Yes, you have different people's point of view. I'm thinking of David Berkowitz and that whole situation and the implications that others were involved and the complexity spirals through the roof. Yeah, and the conspiracy. A lot of people think he was working with powerful people. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And I was going to ask you about that. Uh, On this case, I am wondering about the group element. Like, how as a group did they influence each other and... To what degree? Supposedly, from what I got, was just basically Robin ran the whole thing. He was already cutting off nipples in high school. He already had that fetish and all that stuff. He had been around John Wayne Gacy, but they didn't do anything together as far as killing people. Basically, okay, so he was he was 28 whenever they started the murders, and he was 30 when he was apprehended, and... The uh, Edward Spritzer was 21. The other two boys, the Cocorales twins, not twins, I just call them twins, they're brothers, but they're around the same age, and they look an awful lot alike. Uh, but the Cocorales twins, they were just they were just kids. They were fucking teenagers. They were like 16 and 17 years old. So well, I, I th- it's a situation with the leader has power and influence and control over the followers. Yeah, did you did you hear the part in the episode where I actually talk about that, where they actually said to the police that he had this power over them? They were scared that he was going to do things to them, and they actually used the word trance. And there was more than one of them that actually said this, that he, he had power over them. So it, it was somewhat a cult, more than it was a crew. It sounds like... He had that influence and control and then used it to uh, self-gratify an endless uh, pit that the more that you feed, the hungrier it gets. Yeah, I, I, I believe that thoroughly. And, and I think that he he did use these these kids. And uh, even though the, you know, Spritzer was 21, I still consider him a kid. I think he used them for his own, his own desires. I think that he got off on watching them hurt these women. You know, I imagine that I, I didn't hear anything about who actually put the piano wire around the breast and, and who did this, you know, during whichever thing. But I imagine that they, they probably did it while he told them what to do. It, it makes sense. I'm thinking of other violent offenders. They often get a kick from petty burglary or stealing things, breaking in and entering. The lust for power and control shows up in all aspects of their life. Yeah. And if you go back into the time zone, the 80s, basically all all pornographic stuff as far as movies and stuff were... Dudes with handlebar mustaches, with background music that sucked really bad, and the the same sexual positions and stuff like that. You didn't have where you, where we have on the internet these days, where you could just punch in anything that you want to fucking see and you could see it. 
So I think that he was kind of making these people, these kids, act out what he wanted to have done so he could also watch it. He got off probably on watching it be done as much as he got off on doing it, maybe even more so. Yes, there's this model of progressive offending that often begins with seeing or hearing or even imagining events happening. And then over time, the person moves closer and closer to enacting and offending what yeah. they see. Yes, and then ultimately offending. And, and some of these characters who were around before the internet, they would find ways to collect certain magazines that you could find and people would find them all over the place, like in uh, dumpster bins that neighbors would throw out. Oh, yeah. When I was a kid, that's the only way I was actually going to be able to see a a naked woman is by like a a penthouse or a hustler being thrown out in the garbage or something. And there were sex stores that would do more of the spicy material that you wouldn't find in like a Hallmark store. Yeah, yeah, of course. (laughs) And they they would uh, show fairly violent scenes that that would captivate uh, these men. Yeah. In episode two uh, with David Parker Ray, um, I don't know if you know who he is. He, we were talking earlier on the phone about the toolbox killer. David Parker Ray was the toy box killer, and he was my episode two. And uh, his dad used to bring him detective, true detective magazines is what they were called. Mm-hmm. And, and they were basically yeah. just women being depicted as fucking objects. They, they were usually ball gag. They were tied up. They were always crying you know and that was about you know that was about as hardcore as it got back then uh btk dennis raider he would collect the detective magazines and he would write in his letters that seeing those images was a real jump starter for him in many ways the crimes that he committed was him trying to realize that the image that he saw that lived inside him yeah, it, it, it's huge. And um, I did a research paper in, in college about about pedophilia, about uh, men, you know, with child porn and stuff like that. And a lot of them never even thought about that until they actually saw an image. And then, you know, it, you know, the saying, once you see something, you can't unsee it. And there has been cops, there's been FBI agents, there's been people that have worked on on child pornography cases that have later been arrested for child pornography. And I, I just think the only reason why I'm even pointing that out right now is because what you're saying is just the power of seeing stuff, especially when you're young and vulnerable and stuff like that. It changes the way you fucking look at everything, like especially sexual. That's true. Yes, yes. It, it hooks into people. And it could turn into a paraphilia. That, that people enact, Definitely. or even if it doesn't, it still changes who that person is. Yeah, you sexualize things. You could sexualize objects, children, things, uh, fear. Just so so many different different things as far as that goes, and it's it's pretty scary. I mean, and that's not just sexual things either. Look at I was uh, look at Columbine. I was like right out of high school when Columbine happened, and I remember thinking because I was always in the true crime my whole life. I always studied, uh, you know, people that were outcasts of society, people that were serial killers and stuff like that. And I remember thinking as soon as that happened, 
As soon as I'm seeing it, as I'm watching on the news with, with Dylan Keebolt and, and uh, Eric Harris, I'm watching these kids, and then they're showing pictures of and everything, and I'm like, these kids are doing this because they were bullied. This shit is going to be a fucking epidemic. This is going to, this is not going to stop. This is going to keep on going, and it's going to get worse, and it's going to get worse. And since that shooting, look how many shootings we've had. And it's all because people have got to see that. They got it in their head that they could do that. And, you know, it's just, uh, I, I don't think if that, if that would have happened, how long would have that have taken to, to manifest? It manifested because they did mm, it. And, mm. you're, and you're from Colorado, yes. correct? Are you, are you oh, from? Oh, yes. I, you know, I was about an hour away from the shooting when that happened. Oh, wow. So you were and actually right there. Wow. Your family didn't know if, if, I was potentially there, so they they would reached out to to my family to to check, and the the media glorifies it. Oh yeah, and yeah, the media is fucking try not to, but they continue to do so. They'll never stop. I've said a million times about how they need to quit showing murderers' face faces. If they quit showing the people that are killing everybody and doing these mass fucking shootings, the shootings would go down so much when when the survivor when the shooters do survive, most of the time they say, I want to get my message out. I want people to see me. I want people to know why I did this. If they just stop talking about the murders, the the murderers and making them famous as they're doing this shit, maybe we we wouldn't have so many mass shootings. Even on my show, I don't think that I'm ever really going to cover a mass shooter that just wants to go out and kill a bunch of people so they get on fucking TV. I, I don't know. It's disgusting. And, and it's all for ratings. The media will superimpose the killer's face with a clickbaity title from a manifesto while you see the people running out of the building. And that's exactly what they wanted. Exactly. And if if we are to look at this, which I, I think we should, why not have the, the news say this kid was addicted to drugs? He lost his job. He was angry that his girlfriend left him. He played video games all day. He had no purpose. He Yeah, the fucking truth. Sort of a loser. <laughs> the, and, the, the truth. And it's really like, it's just, a, it's just sad. There, and oh, he it's, didn't it's have so anybody. There's no father figure in the house. There's no message for this uh, child. There's no future for them. The media will never just be honest no. about that. No, no. They, they want to sell advertising space, and they, they want people to tune in. And if they don't make this, this killer and this person that's out shooting a bunch of uh, helpless people, if they don't turn them into like some kind of crazy monster then they're not going to sell that advertising. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. So this story, like like you were saying, though, he uh, Robin Geck did have a lot of control over him. And my problem with the story was so much folklore. See, I even in the beginning of this one, I I was saying that I hear a lot of things on documentaries, on people on YouTube, on on whatever about this case and stuff like that. And most people that are probably that probably listen to this episode have probably heard of this case, knew a little bit about it, but. There's so many lies, and they have to be lies because you can't have the story be five different ways, you know, and that's pretty much what my battle was with researching this story, and I never really had that happen as bad as with this story. There there are so many 
lies out there about this story. So it's uh, unless it came from the, the killer's mouth or unless it came from police files or actual real things, you know, you, you can't really consider Wikipedia a real source. Then I just kind of just I, I, I grunted it off. I'm just like, well, I'm, I'll mention it, but I will also tell people that it's just hearsay. Yeah, the participants involved may be shifting blame. They may have altered perceptions. They may not be in equal relationship with others. Anytime that I hear that there's a satanic occult, I expect there to be a fair degree of hysteria. I, I think of the, the daycare satanic ritual abuse scandals of the 90s. It ties back into what we were talking about with the media. You know about that. Absolutely. That's that's not Absolutely. a very common story. <laughs> a lot of people don't know about that. Well, in one location, there would be a report that really crazy things were happening to children. Sexual things. Yeah. Yeah, they could be sexual things, uh, bizarre things, in, including urine or feces, uh, violent things just basically anything extreme. Once one location started to explore this uh, issue or phenomenon, it tended to spread to other locations, often through reports of children. Yes. And then from what I remember... Scared people. And from what I remember, basically the police and the investigators began coaching the children... And saying this happened to you, right? That happened to you, right? They touched your anus. They did this and did that. And the kids are just like, yeah, yeah, all that shit happened. And the whole thing can spread like a wildfire, and it did. Oh, yeah. I think there were at least 40 different daycares across the country that were reporting uh, satanic ritual abuse. Yeah, and and a bunch of these people went to jail. A lot of them went to jail. Many, many years. And they were were later cleared uh, completely innocent. They, they, they figured out that they were coerced confessions. When judges and, and lawyers started looking at these confessions with these kids, they're like, you're not getting a confession from this kid or a testimony from this kid. You're fucking telling this kid what to say. You're telling this kid where the point. You're telling this kid what happened and he's just shaking his head or she's just shaking her head. That's not good, you know? <laughs> It's like you don't you don't want to ruin people's lives and put them in jail and stuff like that. It goes all the way back to the Salem witch trials. I mean, it's the same fucking yeah. shit. And it, at the level of the adult as well, there's perception and influence that happens, like like the witch hunts. Uh, so, so the adults are are responsible too. And overall, I see it as a like a Jungian psychology, a, a collective hysteria. Uh, like an archetypal fear that exists really in all people. And it's a need. But it, it seems to, to get going in certain places and times. I, I think, too, that it's a need to blame somebody, to, mm. have, a, to have a devil. Mm. I mean, it's like we need, we created that satanic panic because we need to have something to be a fucking afraid of, and we need to have something to blame Oh, that person's just evil. He's just must have the devil in him or something like that. No, maybe people are just fucked up. I, I think that there there are people like Robin Geck that he definitely did have a satanic chapel in his attic and stuff like that. But 
was that just like theatrics for him to try to make these kids do all this shit? Or did he actually believe all that? You know, I've never got to talk to Robin Gex, so I, I don't know. But that would be one of my first questions would be like, did you really think that cutting off the breasts of these women and jerking off on these breasts and reading these these verses from your satanic Bible, did you really think that was going to make your life better? Did you really think you were going to get some kind of uh, power from Satan or something like that? Or was it just some way to talk these kids into doing all this shit that you wanted them to do because that's what you were going to get sexually gratified from? You know. Yes. Yes, people who are gratifying will find whatever it takes to justify or put into action. So uh, this was somebody who is a junkie. This is an addict. And yeah, it just wasn't drugs. Whatever tool they can. And it wasn't like a sacrifice. I mean, when you really look back on biblical things and sacrifices, whether it be to the devil or to God or to one of the gods that people believed in back in the day, you know, whether it be a lamb or a person or a virgin or whatever, they didn't use piano wires and torture people. They just killed them. Everything that they did, that the River Crew did, none of it was actually ritualistically done, especially the jerking off. I don't remember that ever in history. (laughs) Right, right, right. Yes, there's no metaphysical value behind this story and there are luciferians and satanic churches of course and 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 they have some legitimacy a philosophical premise behind them they have they have a reasoning like you mentioned could god exist without satan or does satan or people even exist through through the contrast right right uh so so this case was just this is somebody who's feeding something that makes them weaker. And then by feeding it, they get hungrier and hungrier. Yes. Until everything is a means to that end. Involving the occult, you know, that would be like a clickbaity thing that the media would pull out. Oh, he was a Satan worshiper. Oh, oh they, there's yeah, like a Luciferian church, like down the, in the street. And they're so different than us. Oh, we better be afraid of them. But the truth is, everybody has the tendency to feed things that make themselves weaker. They're called vices. Yes, and we all have them. I mean, yes. no matter what it and is, I mean, you need easy. to cope. We, 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 we need help, especially in today's society. We all need help to cope with things that are going on. The cra- life is crazy these days. And, and for this person, may have been addicted to drugs. I don't know so much the, the personal biography, but clearly was not on a higher pursuit. And Robin Geck wasn't a stupid guy. You know, I mean, like the other three snitched him off right away, pointed all their fingers at him and stuff like that, which maybe rightfully so. Maybe he actually did do all of that. But if you're going to prison for murder, I mean, I, I don't know why you would want to blame it all on somebody else. Like, oh, we didn't do nothing. It was all his fault. But like I said in the story, when they went to arrest Geck, he did not flinch. He did not sweat. He definitely didn't shit his pants. He didn't give a fuck. He's just like, no, I didn't do shit. I don't know what you guys are talking about. So he wasn't mm. a stupid guy. Basically, he he had a little cult, and I think that they just did what they what he wanted them to do for sexual purposes. I don't think it had anything to do with Satan. I don't think it had to do with anything like that. Now, 
you know, maybe he was listening to a lot of Ozzy Osbourne or something like that. Some some bands that had <laughs> yeah. had pentagrams and it's, shit. You know, I, I I don't know. And maybe he just used that to his advantage. Oh, I was just gonna say he's like a David Ray Parker. <laughs> yeah, he, they there's a lot of similarities there. A lot of similarities. But thank God that guy's dead. So what brought you from Colorado to Nashville? Music is alive here and. The South is feels like home. When I got here, I I knew I belonged here. The the culture and the hospitality, and it's beautiful. The weather and the rolling hills and the trees, and uh, I'm so happy here. I feel I was destined to to be here. That's awesome. I play in the streets. I'm a busker, and I always see something interesting every time that I go out. It's really nice to see that and have fun and explore all of the energy but then it's good for me to get out of there and so i escape in the country uh with the cows and the miniature horses yeah and the country over there is absolutely gorgeous yes it is yes so i i'm in a good place where i'm i'm in a location where nobody knows where the hell i am (laughs) nice i was in hendersonville i could get get away from it all I was about 15 minutes north, so I was I was in H- Hendersonville when I lived over there, right across the street from the lake, you, from Indian Lake. Yeah, so you were, you're not, you know, in the downtown or whatever, but you're still part of the the system, right, in Hendersonville. Yeah, I mean, to an extent. I mean, I I lived by a lot of celebrities. Gary Allen lived by me. The guy from Three Doors Down, the guitarist, was up the street. Taylor Swift's parents lived like about. A, about maybe two three miles from my house i mean it's it's kind of a little slow nashville over there but it definitely isn't nashville i mean like the hendersonville is definitely a small you know little town i don't know if you've ever actually like went through there i don't know which way you are from nashville but it's 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 very slow paced i have this song called uh back in the day and it's basically about about a guy that goes down to uh goes down basically to Nashville, goes to Boot Barn, buys himself a whole brand new setup, buys himself a brand new fucking hat, boots and everything. Well, he never even wore the shit in his entire life and changes completely who he is to try to become something that he's not, to do something that he wasn't meant to do, you know? Mm. And how many of those do you see in Nashville? Yes, yes, and they all kind of blend together, and you can't separate them. It's just like a ball of, ugh. Yeah, there's the, there's the Wranglers, there's the hat, there's the, there's the boots, but I bet that motherfucker's never even been on a horse, much less worked on a ranch and shit like that, you know? It's like... Even though I'm a country singer and, and uh, you know, I have country songs on XM, I've had a couple songs on FM and stuff like that, I actually turn down, like, open up for people like Trace Atkins and stuff like that because the way I dress, because I wear camo shorts and I wear black socks and I wear a fucking baseball hat because I'm, you know, I, I have, have I've had pictures taken where I've had like photo shoots with a cowboy hat on and stuff like that but that's that's just not me and that's not the way that i dress whenever i play and it is it's it's cost me a lot of money to dress the way that i dress but that's who i am that's what i'm comfortable with i'm not comfortable with going to boot barn and buying a whole new outfit and changing my name and becoming somebody i'm not because if you do that do you even have a fucking identity anymore 
You need to stay true to who who you are, no matter what. Yes, I was reading some Marcus Aurelius meditations. He talks about how many people would like to be on center stage with a large audience clapping for them. But then he poses the question, who's the audience and why are they clapping? And if you become somebody else and then you get paid all this money and you get all this validation for being not you, uh, you're in a problem because you are unfulfilled. You'll always be wondering, am I loved? What could I have done? Could I have offered? The whole thing turns into a curse. And if you're intrinsically motivated, you will find yourself surrounded by the people who like you for you, and you'll take it as far as you can. And I recommend to everybody, take it as far as you can. Go hard. Never telling anybody to stop. Go harder than last time. Be a fierce lion. Fight, fight, fight. Go down with a sword in your hand, but do it for you. Yes. It goes back to that saying, it's better to be hated for who you are than loved for who you're not. I love it. Tell us how we could find your music and uh, all your websites and all that stuff. It's me, Bubbles.com. It's me, Bubbles.com. It's me, Bubbles.com. Baby, it's the Bubbleverse. Go there today. Hit follow. Subscribe. I'll take you places, man. I'm on TikTok, Reddit, Instagram, YouTube. I do a dance. And if you go to itsmebubbles.com, I'm sure that you have all your other shit, like like all your links on there. Yeah, that's how you'll you'll find everything. Uh, that's right. That's right. And I recommend to everybody, just so Bubbles can give his final take on all this, everybody, don't feed what makes you weaker. Focus on what makes you stronger. And listen, if you feed it and it just makes you hungrier and it just hurts yourself and other people, the only way to move through it is to starve it to death. It will starve. Replace your vices with virtues. Look at others. Don't judge them. Don't make fun of them. Don't do any of that. Learn from them in an honest, compassionate way. And then look at yourself and use it to benefit yourself and others so that you can give. Uh, so thank you for having me on. Very interesting conversation. Very entertaining. It was a great episode. And thank your, your you, viewers please. love you. And you're going to keep going. You got 10,000 already. It's you're, more you're like 15, high, but who's, who's counting? Who's counting? I mean, that's right. Yeah. Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm counting. <laughs> I counted. I didn't mean to count. It doesn't matter. You're the, doing your you know, passion. It wouldn't matter if I it was five that. people, though, honestly, because I like doing this and it's a subject that I'm into. That's the reason why I'm actually going to criminology for grad school, because I, I love I love this type of stuff. And one of the biggest things that I love to do is go through stories that everybody else has fucked up and told a bunch of lies in. You know, it's like you have so many people on YouTube and stuff these days taking murder stories of serial killers and stuff like that and just completely changing and lying about everything to make it sound, you know, I guess more like the media would say it or something like that. You know, me, I like to stick to the facts and I'll give my opinions, but I will also let the people know what are which is which. This is an opinion. This is a fact. 
you know, and it's like, uh, there's just so many people that fuck up stories these days. So I just, and, and, and plus there's not a lot of outlets for people to play mu- music like yours, like mine, like a lot of people's, like there's just not a lot of outlets. So the first thing I did, as I, as I said, I want to marry these two. I want to marry true crime and music. And I want to be able to play music from people that don't get normal airplay and stuff like that. And so far, so so good. You know, I, I, I think that that's, uh, if people want to hear new music, this is the show. If people want to hear the facts about serial killers, this is the show. If you're not in the either and you just want to listen to the same four songs on the fucking radio, then this isn't your show. And you're opening a space for musicians like me and it matters. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you for being on. I, I appreciate it. I appreciate you. I appreciate you uh, emailing me and all that stuff. And, and, you know, it means a lot. And I'm glad that you're on here, and I'm glad I got to play a couple songs. As promised, here's a nice little ditty from Bubbles called Doe's Final Exit. It's a bit strange. Keep an open mind. This is March 19, 1997. I'm Doe, our partnership T and Doe. That's not my name, but that's how I'm referred to on planet Earth. I've been talking to my students that are sitting in front of me, talking to you, Let me say that our mission here at this time is about to come to a close in the next few days. You believe T and Doe with the return of the Father and Jesus? Yes. Based on what? Based on the Bible. Planet Earth about to be recycled. Your only chance to evacuate is to leave with us. Everything has their cycle. They have their season. They have their beginning. They have their end. They have cycles. Now you can say, well, I can't believe that. Well, it's up to you. I wish that you could believe it for your sake. For those who do believe it, stand a possibility of a future beyond this recycling time. Who do you think you are? Well, I, in all honesty, must acknowledge my father. My father is not a human father. So the one or the mind that was in Jesus, what? That mind is in me. You'll have to decide that for yourself. I must admit that I am here again. says heaven's gate awaiting hi Dave Odie you look great there's Alex Odie hi Alex Odie <laughs> they're all cameras yeah hi great. look at the cameras dude hi where's your normal there oh there's Quest Odie hi Quest Odie can you see the camera and there's Chuck Odie there's Stem Odie hi 
It's so great to have Daimodi back in the class. He was out for a while and we had to rescue him. There's Anne Lodi. I'm sure that some of you watching this have seen Anne Lodi. Hi, Chris Odi. There's Melody. Melody, one of our real workhorses. She tries to help us keep track of her funds and helps us with all our computer projects. And Tall Odi next to him. We call him Tall Odi because he's He's a little taller than Lagodi, who happens to be very, very tall. <laughs> and we've had a lot of fun teasing him. I'm Doe for starters. I'm Doe for starters. This all sounds a little wacky. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven. That sounds like a doomsday cult. Heaven's Gate, representing away team. Heaven's Gate, met you at some Burger King. What don't say? Could you find what's the truth? You leave me alone. Now I'll follow you. When I heard the information, I was overwhelmed. It's not a mammalian body. It doesn't reproduce. It's not male nor female. It probably would look like what you might consider a very attractive extraterrestrial. We see fallen angels and space aliens as synonymous. Fallen angels and space aliens as synonymous. Even my father's kingdom moves in spacecraft. You could say, oh my goodness, that's, that's outrageous. Well, you don't like the illustrations of Chariot of Fire. You don't like the illustrations that are in your religious literature that tells of spacecrafts. It could mean that they came in a flying object and they came out of that flying object. Spacecrafts, all sizes spacecrafts that are so small that a very small crew could fit in them spacecrafts that are so large you can't even see the outer extremities in my father's house no incense is required no flowing robes no tingling bells no genuflecting no sitting in lotus position no things of spirituality we know that whatever happens to us after we leave this body is a step forward. Now I know that those that are waiting for the spurious Messiah, the Antichrist, if they become aware of this tape and of Doe sitting here saying what I'm saying now, they'll say, that's the one. That you leave everything behind. That you ignore the members of your family that you ignore the responsibility to your community, that you ignore your career, and that hearts will be broken. The spirit is the mind. It requires ridding ourselves of the mind of the human kingdom. We hope that your thoughts will be of our father's kingdom. Yeah.
Believe that? 